I invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Before we go into the message, I want to begin with a prayer. So if you'll pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, pray that you would be with all of us tonight, that your words would be what we hear. I am mindful that as I speak them, they are your words in my mouth, and I need your help. So I just pray that you would be with me and then be with all of us to put these things into practice and to use your word as you would have it used. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Kevin Jackson has uh, organized this plebe summer worship series. He's given the series the name Jars of Clay. He signed each speaker a passage, and so that's what we're going to look at tonight. This theme, Jars of Clay, and Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is the passage. Jars of clay comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, which say, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure that God has shown into our hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's really amazing if you think about it. In these jars of clay. Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7 says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes said, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And Solomon went on to try just about everything he could think of to find satisfaction, and he said it was all vanity. What is the glory of the flesh? It's a flower that fades, it's a flower that dies. Is there any purpose? Why do we get up every morning? What is the glory of the flesh? It's just a flower that fades, that dies. So why were you created? What is the purpose for these jars of clay? And so, we go to the text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I will read those verses now and follow along. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by his grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are living in an age of overwhelming subjectivism, an age in which nothing really means anything. It's totally subject to whatever anybody wants it to mean. Any word, any thought, any guiding light, any principle will be defined by whatever a particular person wants it to be. We can see that taking place in the current events of our day. It places a heavy strain on our faith. By faith, we believe that there is a God because we can't see him. We can only see him in the things that he has made. So it's by faith that we believe that he is. Romans 1, 19 and 20 say that what can be known about God is plain to every man because God has shown it and we clearly perceive it in the things that he has made. Hebrews eleven three 3 says a similar thing. By faith we understand that what is seen, everything that is all around us, was made by an unseen God. Creation clearly and plainly leads us to something beyond itself, something unseen, something with the power to have created all of it. This is God, the power of his word, merely by expression of his thought that came into being. But this overwhelmingly subjective world places no weight on an objective standard called God, who is the ultimate source of value and meaning. And so now we live in a world where the most basic building blocks of society are completely subject to whatever a person chooses to make them mean. In the beginning, God created a man and a woman, and he put them together in a marriage, and we see that under attack, the most basic building blocks. Of course, they've been under attack for quite some time in our recent age. It didn't just begin now, and in fact, it probably began when we started disrespecting marriage and considering divorce to be so easy and considering that you could just put away one spouse and take another. But this is what it's come to, and we haven't seen anything like this in our civilized world of today. Of course, we can read about times of the past. We can look into the Old Testament and see similar perversions, but it's come to this today in our time. So we come back to the theme of the summer for plebe worship, jars of clay. Earthen vessels, that's what we are, created from dust by God. And so I look into Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I pose the question, why were you created? You were created by God. We are led to that realization by faith, and we naturally ask, why? Why was I created? Why am I here? What am I doing? What's my purpose? So I want to look into the text and notice a few things from it. 
We're going to notice that there is an order to this age, the order of this age. Secondly, we are saved in this age. Three, we're saved for the next age. And then last, we'll look for an answer, why? Why do we live in this age? Why were we created? So first of all, there is an order or a path or a course to this world. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, the course of this world literally could be rendered something like the age of this world or the age of this order. And we once walked according to the course and order of this age. We were dead. So I think then when I read that, if a person's dead, then how are they walking according to the course of the age? If you're dead, how are you walking? It is because the path that we were walking, the course of this world, a path of trespasses and sins, a path that follows the prince of the power of the air, a path of disobedience that has a determined end. It's sort of a, a very American thought to think that we are self-determining. Our, our culture, our history, our government leads us to think these ways. We, we think that we determine our own end. Give me the opportunity and I'll be successful. I'll make it. I'll get what I want. I'll make my own way. We're a government of the people. We'll determine our own laws. We have our rights. I've got my rights. And we hold on to those. But in every way that really matters, in a spiritual sense, this kind of thinking is dead wrong. The course of this world is determined already. It is an end that is death. It's an end that is death as sure as we are sitting here right now. And walking in this way equals death. The mass of humanity is dead, so we were dead in that way. The defining characteristic of this age is disobedience. Again, from verse 2, those walking according to this age are called the sons of disobedience. The spirit of the age is disobedience. The prince, the power of the air, orchestrates disobedience. Living according to the passions of the flesh is disobedience. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind is disobedience. What does that look like? It looks like living for food or living for entertainment or living for leisure or living for a relationship or human contact or for sex, living for power or self-glory, living in fear, living in doubt, living in anxiety. It's all disobedience. We're very familiar with that. In fact, we all still struggle with those ways. Carrying out those desires, carrying out the desires of the body and mind feels like freedom. It's a life of disobedience that enslaves us, and the end is already determined, a way of death. We were dead, unreasoning in that path, unreasoning like animals, just given over to, as C.S. Lewis puts it this way, pleasures, pains, fears, hopes, and affections of this world. It's a never-ending loop of seeking satisfaction and not finding it, of trying to raise ourselves from the dead, of drowning our guilt and our shame in all of the intoxications that sin can provide. But in the words of Paul from Romans 9 and here in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, it is a way prepared for destruction inhabited by vessels of wrath, 
children of wrath, dead and prepared for destruction. And we walked in that way. So the order of this age is self-willed disobedience, chaos, subjectivism, and it ultimately leads to the anarchy of each man doing what he thinks is right according to his own determination as he determines it by his own passions and his own desires. But it is within this age that we are saved, and that is the next thing I want to notice from the text. We are saved in this age. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, But God, the ageless, eternal God, planned a redemption before the ages of His creation even began. It was of our own will that we had separated ourselves from God to live by our own standard, living according to the course of this world. And in that way, we created a chasm that we could not build a bridge over. We couldn't get to the other side. We couldn't climb down in it and get up the other side. We couldn't cross over it. We couldn't make a bridge. We were eternally separated. But God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive. He reached over the chasm and He picked us up with His almighty hand and He placed us on the other side in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Why did He do it? Well, there's a cause and effect. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 says, Because of the great love with which He loved us. God is love. Love is a cause, and a cause always has an effect. Sometimes we're left to draw inferences. Some, we, we learn that way. We, we learn by inferences. We draw inferences. We think about things. We, we draw out implications. But in this case, there's no, we're not left for that. It's, we, don't, we don't see something like this. Because God is rich in mercy, He must love us. That would be true. We could learn from that, but it's not stated that way. We don't have to draw the inference. God is rich in mercy because of His great love for us. It's just plainly stated. We were dead, spiteful, hateful, rebellious, disobedient, vessels of wrath. But God made us alive. And right there at that point in the middle of verses 5 and 6, Paul breaks off. He breaks off from that train of thought and he, and he sticks in there. By grace you have been saved. We couldn't do it and we didn't deserve it. We were dead. We were like the rest of mankind, totally unable to make ourselves alive, but God, rich in mercy, spared us of the destruction that children of wrath deserve, and in grace He made us alive, together with Christ, who was also raised from the dead and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Why did He do it? Look at verse 7. brings us to the third thing I want to notice from the text. Verse 7 says, so that. This is the answer. These words, so that, indicate to us that an answer is ahead. We have been saved for the next age. We were living according to the spirit of the age, and God saved us in this age. We still reside in this age, but He saved us for the next age. Verse 7, He says, coming ages. Over in chapter 1, verse 21, He said, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So we live in this age, but there are coming ages that will never end. We are 
made alive, saved by God in Christ Jesus in this age so that in the coming ages, in the next age, he might show us immeasurable, infinite grace, mercy, kindness, and love. If you look over in chapter 3, verse 18, Paul describes this immeasurable love this way. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says it is love with breadth and length and height and depth. That's four dimensions. Breadth and length and height and depth. I suppose if you remember back to your grade school geometry, you know that finding the volume of a cube is breadth times length times height. But then Paul adds another dimension and depth. It's something beyond what we could even think of. And wherever it is that you see the glory of God in creation, whatever it is that brings your, your soul, your, your mind, soaring to heights, maybe it's the perfect alpine landscape or grassy plains and an open big sky, the vastness of the universe with its billions of stars and galaxies, solar systems that just seems like it's infinite in itself. We're all the way down to the minuteness of the subatomic particle level where we can't even see amazing intricacies and beauties of a human body. All of these things, whatever it is that makes your mind soar, your, your soul is lifted, there's something like that for each one of you. Whatever it is that opens your eyes to the reality of God, we ultimately must see the grace and beauty of His Son so that we can go on for eternity of never-ending discovery. Discovery that will make your heart soar with joy in God infinitely beyond whatever little tinge of glory you're finding in this age. Waking up every morning to newness in God and satisfaction that is far beyond what your finite mind can find in the glories of this world. That's what we were saved in this age for, for the next age. Again, in the words of Paul from Romans 9, here in Ephesians also, he says, we are vessels prepared to show the riches of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, three times Paul says that in Romans or in Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 5 through 14. Three times, to the praise of his glory. So now finally we are coming to the answer. The answer of the question posed at the beginning, why were we created? Look into verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We who are saved are God's workmanship. We are His creation, created in Christ Jesus. Why? We were created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. We have been created to show the love of God. We have been created to the praise of His glory. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, We have been created and chosen even before the foundation of the world. Every Christian in this room, chosen before the foundation of the world. 
to be to the praise of his glorious grace. But we must walk in the way of life and righteousness that God prepared. We once walked in a way that we prepared. We carried out our own desires. We followed the spirit of the age. We tried to define our own meaning and our own value. We tried to do it our way. Give me my rights. I'll do it my way. We tried to live to the praise of our own glory. This is the course of mankind ever since the beginning. Subjectivism, running rampant until it destroys the most basic building blocks of the created order. But faith calls us to leave these ways behind. Leave behind anxiety, leave your fear, leave the desire for self-glory, leave the slavish obedience to desires for food and entertainment and human contact and approval. Don't be given over to the pleasures, pains, hopes, fears, and affections of this age. But also, don't get that process out of order. None of those things will satisfy you. None of them will save your soul, but neither will good works. We have been saved by grace through faith so that we might live a life of obedience to our Creator. We find our meaning and our value in the good works that God created for us to do. We find our meaning and, and our value and joy in God who saved us through faith to do good works, not because of good works. So I realize this sounds like a burden. It sounds like a weight on us to do good works. I understand that because I feel that. Sure, I want that part where God has saved me from, from the destruction that was prepared for vessels of wrath, for jars of clay that are disobedient. I, I want to be saved from that. And I want the part where God says there's another age where we are going to experience immeasurable riches of grace and kindness and mercy. But what is this burden of good works that he has placed on me? Why do I feel this burden? I think it's because we're still a little bit enamored with the course of this world. Why is it that I'm so impatient and so prone to snapping at my wife when I'm grumpy? Why, why do I want it my way? Why do I want to be right? Why am I seeking for my own glory? Why am I dabbling and thinking and dreaming of the way in which I once walked? I think it's because faith, faith that reveals an unseen God is just a little bit weak. God's still fuzzy, but everything around me that I see is pretty clear. All these gifts that God has given, they're pretty clear. Maybe that's what I should go after. Maybe I should fill myself with them. Maybe I should do everything I can do to get what I can get now. So that faith that, re that reveals that unseen God, the faith that realizes we can't reach him unless he reaches to us, that faith is still weak. We haven't left the course of this world completely behind and still harbor a little bit of love for the pleasures, pains, hopes, fears, and affections of this age. There really are only two kinds of works. There's either good works prepared by God for us to do for his glory or evil works that we do for our own glory. 
That bit of love that we harbor for this age is a struggle with the temptation to sin and to find our meaning and our value in those things and to define ourselves that way. We look all around us, people just looking for self-help. How do I define myself? Who am I? And not looking to God. The good news is that faith in God saves us from sin and its power. We are delivered from those things that are a never-ending cycle of seeking and never finding and numbing and still feeling and intoxicating ourselves with sin and then sobering up to the same pain in producing, in producing through hard work and then watching that go to decay and then making more and watching that go to decay. It's the cycle of this world. Seems there's no purpose. There's no satisfaction in this. God did not save us from wrath. He did not save us for an age to come and leave us under the power of sin. That cycle. 1 Peter 2:24 says it this way. He bore he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By faith we are saved from the course of this world, saved to live in righteousness, that we might walk in them, in those good works, and do them. God has delivered us from sin and healed us. But the burden that we feel when we hear that we are to live in righteousness and walk in good works, that's just a little bit of rebelliousness, wanting to have it our way one more time. I want to close with a prayer that I draw from a couple of verses here in Ephesians. May God enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to sing a song now. If there's any way we can encourage you, we want to do that now. And if you haven't been washed and sanctified from the course of this age, now is the time to do that also.